Well, hey there. This is Kim Constable. Welcome to the Kim Constable podcast. Nobody cares. Work harder, baby. So what are we going to talk about this week? Well, today we are going to talk about um, something which actually happened to me quite recently, which I thought would be really good to share with you guys because it was like a massive revelation that I had about my training. And the crux of it is really about how to modify your training to work around your body, your age, your injuries, all those different things and still get really good results. And I guess that, you know, I became more aware of this recently because I've been doing a lot of work with my coach, like a lot of work, like two to three times a week, probably now for the last 14 months, I guess, ever since I became, you know, reasonably successful and was able to afford to pay for regular coaching. Um, and I've, I've really noticed an enormous amount of growth over the last 14 months in my own personal journey, um, personally and professionally, which has really helped me to grow the company, grow the team, and also just to live a kind of a joyful, more, you know, and happier life. And so recently, um, I guess whenever I was training in the gym, one of the things I noticed was that uh, there were exercises that were, that, you know, were, were causing me to feel fearful whenever I was training. So and I was like, this was, I was like, this is so ridiculous. Like, you know, why am I scared of this exercise? I was beginning to dread back day because of a couple of exercises. I've always dreaded leg day, but I was beginning to really dread leg day recently, like really dread it. Like, and it's causing me sleepless nights and all that kind of stuff. And I thought there's definitely something underneath this here. So I began to, you know, look at it and unpack it and figure out what the hell was going on rather than just avoid it, which I know is what many people do whenever they have an issue or feel fearful um, or just push through, which is what I normally do. And it uncovered some really really, really spectacular shit for me, which I really want to share with you guys today. So that is basically what we are going to talk about today. But before we get into the training, um, I just want to let you know that the winner of this month's podcast giveaway uh, is Samantha Barlow. Congratulations, Samantha. I know that we have already contacted you and you've already chosen whatever program it was you decided you wanted. And I just want to say congratulations. Thank you so much for your wonderful review. And if any of you guys would like to leave a review on the podcast to be in with the chance of winning one of our Sculpted Vegan programs, then all you have to do is leave a review wherever you're listening to this podcast, then screenshot the review and send it to me on Instagram. If you don't do that, you're not going to be with the chance of winning. My Instagram handle is The Sculpted Vegan, and you could be in with the chance of winning one of our Sculpted Vegan programs in February. This is now January 2021 um, at the time this podcast is being broadcast, and you be, could be in with the chance of winning in February, and we will announce the winner at the start of February whenever we choose it. So let's get into the content this week. Okay. So, first, let me tell you a story. You know, I love my stories and I know that you love the stories too. So I'm just going to continue to tell them for as long as I like telling them and you like listening to them. So this story is about kind of my former or my years before I started bodybuilding, which was whenever I was practicing yoga. Now I had been, I started practicing yoga whenever I was, oh, let me think, Maya, my oldest was a baby and she is now 11. So, I mean, 11 years ago, my mom dragged me along to an Ashtanga yoga class and I was like, I don't want to practice yoga because I had always done Pilates. And I remember that one of the things I always struggled with in yoga once I started and really got into it were back bends. I've never had a very flexible back. Like I remember whenever we were younger and we used to do gymnastics, 
my sister Carrie and my cousin Kate, they were really, really good at gymnastics. And they were always like, you know, bendy little pretzels. And they were able to do, you know, back walkovers and front walkovers. And I always struggled with stuff like that, you know, backflips and stuff, because I've just never, ever had a flexible back. And I think that, you know, genetically, we are all made up in different ways. I've always had very open hamstrings, but very tight hips. And there are people who have very open hips and very tight hamstrings. And I think you just kind of have to work with what you've got. But of course, I never thought about this at the time. Um, I just decided that, you know, if I was bad at something, well, I was damn well going to become good at it. And so I used to practice yoga, you know, very seriously, I guess, or very consistently. Whenever I first started yoga, I would have gone to um, an Ashtanga yoga class, maybe three days a week. And then I started practicing at home. And then once I, you know, had the babies and then I got pregnant with, you know, Jack and, I practiced yoga the whole way through my pregnancy and I started practicing at home consistently rather than just practicing, you know, in class. And whenever you develop a home yoga practice, that's whenever your practice really does, you know, deepen and you can say you're not a true yogi, but uh, whenever you can practice at home without the discipline of needing to go to a class, that's when you learn the most about yoga. And so because I loved yoga and I was practicing, 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 I was always doing tutorials at home and I was doing, um, you know, I was learning about shoulder looping and anyone who does Anyasara yoga will know about shoulder looping and I would have you know practiced anything that I was kind of bad at or wanted to be better at or wanted to learn more of I would have done a lot of tutorials online with an online website called yoga glow yoga glow is amazing it's got some of the best teachers in the world teaching on yoga glow and you can go online on yoga glow and you can do a workshop on practically anything right anything back bends hamstrings you know inversions pinchamariasana handstands you know you you can do back bends on or not back bends so you can do, do you can do tutorials on anything at all And so I was practicing very regularly with Yoga Glow and I was determined because I wasn't good at backbends that I was going to get better at backbends. And so I would have put a lot of backbends into my practice. And then I also would have taught, you know, obviously yoga. I I began to teach yoga. I became became a, a yoga teacher and I would have taught private yoga two to three days a week from home in my home studio. And my back was just continually sore. My back was never not sore. I can't remember a day from I started practicing yoga until about four years ago when my back was not sore. And I used to, you know, bend down to empty the dishwasher every morning and I was constantly, oh my God, my back. I used to get these sharp pains in my lower back and I would have had like a sharp shooting pain, you know, up my up my right hip. And I couldn't lie on my back for any, you know, length of time. And I used to wake up in the morning. If I'd ever lay on my back, you know, turned over onto my back at night to sleep, then I would have woken up in the morning and my back was absolutely crippled. Like I couldn't even bend over in the morning to put my shoes on. And if I'd been practicing back bends or doing any kind of, you know, because I, I got really good. And I used to be able to do drop backs in yoga and, you know, all kinds of handstand work and inversions and TikToks and all that kind of stuff. And of course, the more I warmed up, the easier it got. But honestly, the more back bends I practiced, the sorer my back got, right? Really, really, really bad. I went for constant chiropractic work. I got um, massage as much as I could. I did everything I possibly could to try and get over this back pain. And I just couldn't get rid of it. And I just believed that if I if I just kept getting better at back bends, I just I, I believed, I guess, that my back was inflexible. And what was causing the back pain was the inflexibility of my back. So if I just kept practicing yoga and I just kept doing more and more and more and more of it, I believed that one day my back pain would go away. 
I just believed it would go away. I thought I just need to keep doing more and more and more and more of this. And then one day my back pain will disappear. And so then I started training in the gym. And whenever I first went to the gym and I started, you know, training with a PT or training with my, my prep coach, Curtis, and he would have had me squatting in the gym. And I remember the first time, you know, we ever started squatting and I would, you know, squat right down into like a yoga squat. And he'd be like, no, no, you don't have to squat so far. It's not a flexibility squat. It's a strength squat. But I remember that my back was just in agony afterwards. It was just so sore. And I remember thinking, damn, I can't keep doing these squats because it's just so freaking sore doing squats. You know, it was really, really bad. Leg press didn't bother it. But I remember squats were really, really, really painful for me. And I just lived with this sore back for like in years and years and years. But then, you know, as I started strength training more and I stopped doing as much yoga because as I got really seriously into the strength training and the competing, I didn't have as much time to practice yoga and I wasn't doing constant tutorials. And, you know, the more strength training I did, the less yoga I did. And and my back pain slowly, slowly, slowly started to disappear until that it wasn't, you know, it was hardly there at all. I actually had to do something to it. Or sometimes I would, you know, practice yoga at home or I would go to a yoga class and we would do back bends and I would wake up in the morning. I'd be like, oh, damn, there's my, you know, my, my inflexible back again is causing this back pain. And it never really occurred to me that it could be something else. And any of you who've listened to this podcast for a while or followed me online or bought one of my programs will know that I'm always preaching on about how, which is true. So I'm going to caveat what I'm going to tell you now by saying that it is true that whenever your glutes are not strong, they will pick up a lot of the slack that the, uh, the sorry, the lower back will pick up a lot of the slack. They will pick up a lot of the work that the glutes are supposed to do. And so um, what was happening whenever I first started squatting was I really had no gluteus maximus. I had a strong glute medius from loads of twisting in yoga, but I had no no gluteus maximus. And you'll find this a lot well, with many yoga people is that they have a very small flat bum because yoga does not build up the bum whatsoever. It's great for flexibility. It's great for, you know, building long lean muscles, but it's really not big for good for building bigger muscle tissue unless you're doing a lot of strength stuff. And it certainly is not good for building the glutes. So I... Um, whenever I first started squatting, my because I had no glutes, my lower back was picking up a lot of the slack. And so therefore, that's what was causing a lot of pain whenever I was squatting. But also, as I was first squatting, I was also squatting like a yogi instead of squatting like a bodybuilder. And bodybuilders, before they squat, will activate their quads and activate their glutes, will draw up in the pelvic floor, draw the navel towards the spine, keep the chin up, the chest up, wrap the bar around the traps, chin up, and then will squat down with strength the whole way and the whole way, the whole way down, the whole way back up again. So everything stays activated as you squat down and squat up. Of course, I was squatting in the beginning like a yogi where I was just kind of balancing the bar on my shoulders and squatting right down as if I was, you know, going down into a yogic squat and then coming all the way back up again. And that that is not the way you squat with heavy weight. It seemed, it's good for flexibility, um, but it's really not good for squatting with a heavy weight. So of course, I was squatting incorrectly. And as I improved my technique, my back stopped hurting but I truly believe that the only reason why my back stopped hurting was because I I got stronger, was because I strengthened my glutes. I was like, oh my God, this is amazing. This is, this is what I've been missing all of these years. This is why my back has been sore. It's because of my glutes. So then one day I went to um, back to a yoga class and it wasn't even a 
I stopped, I stopped doing a lot of yoga. I, I very rarely practice yoga now, very, very, very rarely, simply because I do 60 minutes cardio in the morning and I train um, either at home or in the gym, depending on whether we're in lockdown or not. And then, you know, then I go to work all day. So I really just don't have any time to practice yoga anymore. I don't make the time to practice yoga. I haven't made it, you know, something um, that's important to me recently. And so uh, I went to a yoga class one day after I had been training for a while and my back pain had all but disappeared and it was just a, a basic yoga class and I was just, you know, when I realized I was like, oh, a little stiffer, a little less flexible than I was and I wasn't doing anything crazy, I wasn't doing any crazy back bends or... Um, although I think I was doing Urdhva Dhanurasana, which is um, upward facing bow pose or wheel pose, many of or crab, many of you know it as. I we were doing some of those at the end, and I think I was also, um, I think I was doing upward facing dog rather than doing um, just cobra pose. So I was, you know, doing some of the deeper backbend work that was in the class, and my back was I was crippled the next day, and that's whenever I suddenly went, huh? Okay, hang on a wee second here. Maybe my back isn't just inflexible. Maybe my back is actually aggravated by back bends. Maybe I have some kind of weakness in my back, which is aggravated by back bends. And really, honestly, this had not even entered my consciousness up until now. Up until, up until now, I was just like, I just need to get more flexible. I just need to work harder. I just need to push through. Whatever it was, was causing me to believe that I could, basically my belief was, I can fix this problem. I can fix it. And what, what is going to fix it is just working harder. I mean, if you think about what this the crux of this podcast is, it's called Nobody Cares, Work Harder, right? And working harder is at the ethos of everything I do. It's at the center of everything I do. And it's very, very good to work harder. But sometimes it can be a little bit um, counterproductive or debilitating as well. So what had happened was I thought that I had just got stronger. But this was only partially true because I had just stopped doing the thing that was causing me pain and that was backbends. So the problem problem wasn't really my flexibility or my strength. The problem was actually my ego, right? Or rather my belief in my own ability because I ha truly have always had this belief that you can combat any problem by just working harder at it. If you just work harder at it, work more consistently at it, work more diligently at it, apply yourself more to it, you can basically overcome any problem in your life. And I'm a kind of pretty resourceful person, right? <laughs> And I've always been the kind of person to believe that I can really muscle my way through anything. And that, I think that's why I loved strength training in the gym and why I loved getting stronger was because it really spoke to the part of me, the belief that I hold core to my values and to myself and to my personhood, that if you just work a bit harder, you can achieve anything. You can get anything, you can do anything and you can, you know, you can work your way through any problem. And I guess because you know, I'm a very resourceful person and I can usually muscle my way through things. This had served me well throughout my entire life. But as I got older and as I became, as I began to, um, as I had four children, obviously, and as I began to have back pain and as I began to, you know, be kind of less resilient, you know, like you are whenever you're in your 20s. Like I start, I didn't start weight training until I was in my late 30s. I was 37 when I started weight training, maybe 36, 36, 37. So I was already hitting my 40s, you know, and my body, you know, your body starts to 
it doesn't start to break down. That's a terrible way to put it. But you definitely don't have, you know, the the um, the youth and the flexibility and the the strength and the resilience and and all of that, you know, bouncing back that you do whenever you're in your twenties as you head towards your forties. It's like, you know, if if you drink alcohol, you'll know that hangovers in your forties are so much worse than hangovers in your twenties. Like, in your hangover in your twenties, it's not that the hangover is worse; it's that you can cope with it better. Whereas in your forties, you're like, oh my god, like you just don't want to feel bad. And I think that 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 also comes up as well for us. So t- let me tell you what happened or where where I realized that this came from. I was working with my coach recently and it was actually during the coronavirus pandemic. And I remember that um, I, during the, I've talked about this a few times, but during the coronavirus pandemic, whenever it first hit, what happened was we were in the middle of a launch and the lo- I had invested £100,000 in Facebook ads and the launch was not going as planned, as you can imagine, because the- this coronavirus pandemic hit right in the middle of the launch. Now, I managed to pull it out of the bag and, um, you know, pay off my credit card bill and, you know, people were still spending money and, and it-, it ended up being, you know, okay for us and then of course we created the jailhouse shred and then we created the butt camp and but you know whenever the pandemic hit instead of being fearful and instead of you know like hiding at home or not hiding at home but being like oh my god I don't know what's gonna happen instead of letting the fear paralyze me I used the fear as a I always do to mobilize me. So fear for me has always been mobilizing. Fear for many people um, can be paralyzing, but fear for me has always been mobilizing. I'm the kind of person who believes that you should feel the fear and do it anyway. And I've always held that belief. And so this was um, this belief was kind of holding it all together for me during the coronavirus pandemic, but there were a couple of days that I was very stressed and I was very upset and you know and I was I was I was finding it hard to sleep as you can imagine and I was really in just I was in this go 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 like that that was kind of my my viscera at the time was driving me like I literally from the minute I woke up to the minute I went to sleep I was go 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 I just couldn't let myself switch off and I couldn't let myself stop and I was drinking far too much alcohol because it was a beautiful it was actually a beautiful summer and of course there was nothing else to do because we were all in lockdown so I would go home after work and my husband and I would have a few beers and I would have a few more beers and um, and so if that was the only time that I really felt like I could switch off and so I was working with my coach one day and we started talking about what was going on for me because I was having this viscera of this feeling that I just needed to go 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 and I said to her I have this like this feeling this viscera we call it which is running my life at the minute and so we really began to unpack what was going on underneath this viscera and so one of the best things that you can do whenever you're having a feeling in your body many people try to run away from their feelings or they explain their feelings or they do all kinds of you know weird shit with their feelings like they basically try to not feel their feelings whereas I'm the kind of person whenever I feel a feeling what I do is I pause I slow down and I I examine the feeling. So I pause, I slow down and I examine the feeling. And it's not that I examine it, but what I do is I focus on it and I bring the feeling up in my body and I make the feeling stronger. And then I think about what memory it triggers for me, because this is, you know, one of the the coaching techniques that I would use with people, but also that my coach will use with me. So what we will do is we will, we will focus on what memory comes up, what associated memory comes up, if any, and then we will work on the associated memory. And whenever I was working with my coach on this particular coronavirus pandemic, and what you'll find is, by the way, that where wherever you go, there you are, right? We're talking about coronavirus pandemic, but this actually affected my squatting. So let me let me tell you what happened. 
I began to focus on the feeling and what came up for me, the associated memory came up and, and I said to my coach, it's the weirdest memory. And I said, but you know, I'll tell you about it. And she said, go on. So I said to her, I remember whenever I was younger, I must've been about seven or maybe eight years of age, not very old. And my older sister, Carol, was three years older than me. So she would have been, you know, 11 or 12. And so we used to, I've ridden horses my entire life. We always had ponies whenever we were younger. And I had a pony called Danny and she had a pony called Shabby. And we used to go um, to this place called Red Hall. So Red Hall was... We had to hack to get there. So hack, you know, is like just walk the horses there. And it would have been a good, probably 30 minutes to hack there. And so, you know, we used to hack there on the horses. And then we used to, um, they had a cross country course around Red Hall. And I loved cross country because I was always such a daredevil. And so we would have gone to the cross country course and we would have, you know, ridden around the, the cross country course. Anyone could go in or any horses could go in. You were totally allowed to. And we used to ride around the cross country course and jump the jumps and do stuff and then, you know, hack home again. But Carol, my sister, has always been very, very afraid. Even today, we are chalk and cheese. Carol is, her whole life is driven a lot by fear. She's the oldest child, the oldest of three in three years. And so she was probably, you know, my parents were, were, well, my dad especially was very controlling. And um, so Carol, I think, you know, being the oldest child, unfortunately, bore the brunt of most of the control. We came very quickly afterwards. And by the time I came along, I was just defiant. So Carol and I used to go here and we used to ride the horses, but she used to get very scared. I was always the one who led the way. Even though I was the youngest, I've always been the one in my family who leads the way, the one who forges ahead, drives the path, you know, goes ahead. And as I was always the one who was sent to see had Santa been yet if mum was cross with us I was the one who was sent to sort it out with her I was always the one who was pushed forward by my two sisters who were a lot more scared than I was and so I think that's probably where I developed a lot of my confidence and so this day in this particular memory I said to my my coach I said whenever I focus on this feeling this feeling of fear that I have that's driving my life at the minute I said I remember going to Red Hall with Carol to ride the ponies and I said I and we were looking for one of the trails um you know for the cross country course and I said I remember staring up one of these trails and there was a lot of overhanging bushes and overhanging trees so you couldn't really see up the trail very well but I could see there was a jump ahead of me just up the trail but quite often you didn't know what was on the other side once you jumped that over the trails weren't that wide and so you know there's a lot of bushes and stuff on either side a lot of low hanging hedges there could have been a lot of deep mud that you would have got stuck in and so you know it was a bit of a risk whenever you know you were looking up these trails as to um, how many jumps would be on it you know how, how fast you would have to go and all the rest of it and my pony Danny was a little shit right he was great he was an amazing Connemara he was a great jumper he was a show jumping pony and um, so, and, but he was so headstrong. And so whenever, if he took off, you know, at a canter or a gallop, we were on a cross country course, I was only seven or eight years of age. I didn't have very much strength. It was really hard for me to control him. Now I could always pull him up eventually, but if Danny saw a jump and he went charging towards it, there really wasn't a way in hell you were stopping him, right? So if you committed on that trail, you were committed, right? You had to just fucking ride it out on the way up there. So I was saying to Carol, like, come on, come on, we'll ride up here. And she was like, oh, I don't know. I don't know. I'm scared. And I said, come on it'll be fine it'll be fine and I remember standing there and oh you know on the horse sitting on the horse and Danny's all chomping at the bit and, jung, 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 and jumping around and, and I was like come on Carol it'll be fine it'll be fine I didn't want to do it on my own and I couldn't do it on my own because if I had have taken off up that trail her pony Shabby would have shot off after me so I needed her to agree that this would have been a good idea and so, of course, then I'm standing there and I'm like, oh, my God, oh, my God. And all my fear is coming up. So I'm like, what if we go up here? What if I take Carol into danger? What if something bad happens? All of these fears were coming up. But then on the other side was 
I really want to do this. This is really exciting. This is really great. I love jumping. I love whatever. So I'm battling these two sides, battling these two sides. And had I been on my own, I may have been a little more cautious, but I had to put on this bravado for Carol. So I had to be like, no, 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 it's fine. It's totally fine. Uh, We've got this. There's no need to be scared. It's totally okay. Even though inside I was like terrified, not terrified, but I was apprehensive and I was scared because I didn't know what was on the other side of this only jump that I could see up this trail. And so Carol was like, and I was like, come on, come on, we'll be fine. She was like, oh, I don't know. I don't know. And I was like, come on, come on, you'll be fine. Let's go. Let's go. So I turned around and so I, I turned Danny around and I said, come on. And I kicked him on and I took off up this trail. Of course, then her pony Shabby came charging after me and I could hear her going, Kim, Kim. And at this point she was committed. There was nothing she could do, but hold on. So we went galloping up this trail, took the first jump. I looked behind me. Carol jumped it. That was fine went trailing up this trail there was another jump and another jump and another jump so it was quite a few jumps and a few of them had to go through quite thick mud and there was overhanging trees and so then once we got to the end of the trail I hauled and hauled and hauled and pulled Danny up and Carol's pony went charging past Danny crashed into him and then went kind of went into a bush a little bit and she was wearing glasses at the time and so the glasses, one of the bushes like smacked her in the face and knocked her glasses off. And she was like, ah, she was screaming. She was like, I hate you. I hate you. I can't believe you did that. That wasn't fun. And she started like blaming me and getting like really upset with me. And, and I remember I was like, oh my God. And I felt like exhilarated at one point, but I felt really bad on the other side because I'd taken this risk and we, it would have been fine and we'd gone up the trail. But now my sister was angry with me and she was punishing me. And I was like, should I have done it or should I have not done it? And I was like, oh, and I was having like, you know, all of these feelings or whatever. And then she was like, that's it. I'm going home. We're not doing this anymore. And I was like, okay, okay. I'm really sorry. I'm really sorry. And then all I was thinking was, oh my God, please don't tell. I was like, please don't tell mom. Please don't tell mom. Because I thought she was going to tell mom. Kim did this to me and my glasses got knocked off and I got in trouble and then I thought that I was going to get in trouble so I was like please don't tell mum please don't tell mum so this is the memory that came up whenever I was you know evaluating this with my coach and and so here is what here's what happened right from this memory you may think well that's a great memory but how does this even relate to anything you're talking about so what happened was I built a belief right I built a belief in that moment from that experience and I you know In my very young life, I built a belief that even if you feel scared, you can do it anyway and it will all turn out okay. In fact, not only you can do it anyway, if you feel scared, you should do it anyway because it'll all turn out okay. Because even though Carol's glasses got knocked off and whatever, by the time we got home, she wasn't, you know, that upset anymore. And I think she must have told mom, but I didn't get into too much trouble and I was able to play it down. And, And so I got what I wanted, which was... I wanted to jump the trail. It was so much fun jumping the trail. It was like we were, you know, the, the jumps were reasonably big and it was, I just loved, I was such a daredevil. I just loved riding the ponies and cross country has always been my favorite thing to do. And uh, so I got what I wanted out of it. It turned out well for me. I had success. I took the risk and I achieved it. And so I had built this belief that had carried me the whole way through my adult life that if you feel scared, you can and should do it anyway because it will all turn out okay. Okay. And let me just tell you a little bit about what happens whenever you're younger. So your belief structure as a child isn't formed. um, Well, your belief structure, sorry, is formed when you're a child and it's all formed before you reach cognition. So 
after cognition, which is usually happens around puberty, which for girls is, you know, somewhere between kind of 11 and 13. Boys can be a little later sometimes between, you know, 11 and 15. But before puberty, you, your brain can't make sense of the world. You, you haven't reached what's called cognition. So when after cognition, you are able to assess a situation from a rational point of view. So case in point, if someone is angry with you, so let's say, you know, your mother is angry with you and she shouts at you, it may still set off your fight or flight because someone shouting at you is always scary and does trigger your fight or flight, which is a, a lower brain function. It's an inbuilt mechanism that we can't control. It's just part of us. So your mother shouting at you can trigger your fight or flight, but you, you will be able to look at her and make sense of different reasons as to why she may be upset. So you can say, well, I know that her period is due because you may know about periods at that time. Or, um, you know, you can say, well, I heard, you know, her and daddy yelling at each other last night, or I know that they had a fight this morning, so she's in a bad mood. Or you can say, I know she's been very stressed at work and that could be causing it. Or uh, I know that, you know, she's, you know, her, my granny just died and she's upset about that. So she's on a, you know, a low, you know, her tolerance threshold is lower. So you're able to assess different reasons as to why your mother could be angry and very few of them are to do with you. So you don't actually make it mean anything about you. Like you cause the anger. I'm a bad person. I, you know, my mother doesn't love me. I'm not lovable. I'm, you know, um, stupid. Or you, you don't make it mean something about you. You're able to look at your mother and assess the reasons why she may be angry or your father or your teacher or whoever. And you know, it's nothing to do with you. Before cognition, you do not have those powers of reasoning. This is why I always say to you, don't be angry at your children. When you are angry, when you display anger or you shame your children or you shout at your children or you display any kind of anger or displeasure at your children without owning that anger and displeasure, then what you do is you you make them, you set up a meaning or you, you can build a belief in them that your anger is their fault. So they can they can make the anger mean that you don't love them or you don't respect them or that they should need to hide a part of themselves because this part of themselves makes someone angry. So they make it mean something about them and that shapes their belief structure for the rest of their life. So basically we are just adults running around in children's bodies or we are children running around in adults' bodies. Actually, that's probably a better way of putting it. So basically our belief structures, we we build before we reach cognition, our main belief structures, which is why if you grow up in an abusive family, when you have a father who hits you and tells you he he's doing it because he loves you, you may build some kind of funky link between violence and love and you may always, you know, end up with violent men. Or you may end up in a violent marriage. Or if you have a very controlling father, you probably have a very controlling husband or wife. Or you are the controlling one and therefore you have a more acquiescent husband or wife. So how you are treated by your parents, by your carers, by your teachers, literally builds your belief structure for the rest of your life. Now you can then apply adult logic onto the top of things. And you can even say, you know, oh, well, I understand that lying is bad, but yet you still lie. You lie to your spouse, you lie to your kids, you lie to yourself for fuck's sake. So a lot of us believe that lying is bad, but yet we still we still lie. So or we believe that, you know, we shouldn't do this thing over here or we shouldn't shout at our kids, but yet we still shout at our kids. So as you grow older, you begin to apply adult logic on top of an illogical belief pattern. And that is what builds the rest of your life. 
So this postulate that I developed whenever I was young, whenever I was riding horses, actually, I carried this through the rest of my life. And so every time something scared me, rather than pausing and evaluating whether or not it would be a good idea to do the thing that was scaring me, I just muscled on through. I just felt the fear and did it fucking anyway. And so fortunately, this actually turned out quite, you know, okay for me because um, I'm, you know, highly successful at bodybuilding. I'm highly successful at business. I have, you know, successful relationships. And so usually, you know, these things that we build, these postulates that we build as children, or these beliefs that we build as children, they're, they're self-protective in nature, a lot of them. So when your mother yells at you and then you develop all kinds of behaviors to stop her from yelling at you, that's self-protective in nature. So, you know, we, we develop coping mechanisms, but sometimes then, then what'll happen is you will avoid some, you will develop some kind of conflict avoidance pattern for the rest of your life that you carry through the rest of your life, which means you'll never actually confront someone or something or a situation because you'll be so, um, focused on avoiding conflict. So many of us are conflict avoiders because of how we've been brought up. So um, I w- this, I wasn't a conflict avoider. For me, it was the opposite. I was actually, if I felt fearful in a situation, I had built a belief through this experience on the ponies when I was seven years of age, that if you feel fear and you do it anyway, you'll have success or you'll get a, you'll have this exhilarating feeling of success or and it'll all turn out fine. And so, but, and it was good for me because it's meant that I've been able to use that to push through a lot, but it also meant on the other side that I was actually very bad at evaluating data independent of viscera. So what do I mean by that? Well, when we're young and our belief structure is being formed in the way that I just discussed with you, we form what are called postulates. So whenever we, if we do a behavior, like a really bad postulate would be that if you are young and you steal something, because kids, you know, kids do shit like that because they don't understand why stealing is bad. So if you're younger and you steal something and you get away with it, you build a postulate, a postulate that you can steal and not get caught. Now, if you steal something and you get caught and you're, you get punished or you have a consequence, you will develop a postulate that you should never steal because you will get caught. So it's a really good, that's a really good postulate to build. So, you know, if our postulates are built correctly as children, as in like we do something bad and there's a consequence or something bad happens, that's a really good postulate to carry into adulthood. However, on the other side, if we, if we build, if we do something as a child that is that is bad and we don't get caught or we get away with it, then we can carry that postulate through to our adult life. So what exactly is a postulate? Well, the dictionary definition of a postulate is a thing suggested or assumed as true as the basis for reasoning, discussion, or belief. So I'm going to read that to you again. It is a thing suggested or assumed as true as the basis for reasoning, discussion, or belief. So I formed a postulate, a belief, if you will, that anytime you feel fear, anytime you are confronted with a situation like I was with the coronavirus situation and you feel fear that you should forge ahead because success lies on the other side of fear. Now, this belief, like I said, has has done me the world of good because I haven't allowed fear to control my behavior or stop me from doing things. I have been able to achieve a huge amount in my life because I have felt fear and I've forged ahead and I have been successful. 
However, the downsides of this postulate are sometimes this isn't true. It just isn't true. So sometimes feeling fear means that you should stop and evaluate a situation and figure out whether or not you should forge ahead. Because feeling fear does not mean that you should forge ahead. Do you understand what I mean? Feeling fear is just, fear is a reaction in the body, right? Fear in the dictionary definition as a noun is an unpleasant emotion caused by the threat of danger, pain, or harm. So by me just forging ahead, by me deciding that fear meant that I should just keep going, I had, yes, achieved a huge amount, but it also meant that I had stopped myself from evaluating a situation whenever I actually shouldn't forge ahead. So although it had got me into, you know, or it had helped me to achieve a lot of my life, it had also gotten me into some sticky situations or potentially harmful situations in the past, especially when I was a teenager and I didn't really have the life experience to, you know, evaluate and make decisions rationally. And so here's the thing about fear, right? Fear exists to keep us safe. That's why it exists. As a noun, it is an unpleasant emotion caused by the threat of danger, pain, or harm. So it exists to keep us safe. And sometimes it is real and sometimes it is not. So sometimes our body, you know, fear is triggered in our body. Um, and when, when fear cannot be real is whenever it is triggered by... Um, a memory. So like I talked about earlier, if your mother or your father yells at you and triggers your fight or flight, that causes you to feel fearful when really there's actually nothing to feel fearful about. There's no threat of danger unless your father was abusive or your mother was abusive and would have hit you. Then there was fear of danger, obviously. But, you know, quite often we make stuff mean mean things that aren't true. So sometimes it it is real as in like, if I forge ahead, if I feel fear over coronavirus and I forge ahead, I could potentially lose my business. If I make decisions that put my family's finances at risk, that is a real, that is a real threat, right? We could lose our home. We could lose our family. We could, you know, there's so much more, so much more damage could be taught, could be caused. And there's the you know potential for harm. And sometimes fear is not real. Sometimes we can we can feel fear, like the government at the minute is using fear to control the masses. Now, does coronavirus exist? Yes. Do I believe that there is reason to be fearful over coronavirus? No, I don't believe. I believe that that fear is being used at the minute to control people. And because we are so easily controlled by fear, because of how we are parented, FYI, and because of how we are put in institutions such as schools and then controlled by fear by our teachers, we are trained to obey fear. But sometimes that fear is real and sometimes it's not. But here is my point. We have lost the ability to discern. We have lost the ability to discern between what we should actually be fearful of and what we should not. Because our our governments, our parents, our institutions use fear to control. They trigger fear in young children. They trigger fear of consequence. They trigger fear of being hurt in young children, which is a very, very big fear for children. All they're concerned about is their safety. So they trigger fear of their safety. And then once that fear button is installed as a child, it is used to control you for the rest of your life until or if or if if you decide until you decide not to until you have not to let it until you have awareness until you listen to a podcast like this and then you go, 
oh my God, I did not realize that fear was installed in me as a child and I can actually choose to feel the fear and, you know, and and then do the thing that they want me to do or, or feel the fear and not. So sometimes fear is real and sometimes it's not. Sometimes it's used to control. But in the context of fear, we feel when confronted with a decision, it's good to be able to evaluate the fear and decide whether to act or not. So, and I swear I'm getting back to my point in a second. You're going to see where this is going. So in that situation with the horses, when I with the ponies when I was younger, I felt fear and I forged ahead and it turned out okay. So I built a postulate, a belief that when you feel fear, you should forge ahead because it will all turn out okay. That is not true. When you feel fear, you should actually pause evaluate the situation and then decide whether to act or not. Because if you don't do this, the fear is controlling you. Now, many people only think of fear as being a negative thing. They think of fear as being something that, you know, like I said, with the coronavirus pandemic, you know, oh my God, I I feel scared. So I better not leave my house. I better not see my friends. I better wear a mask. I better all of these things. So that's because they feel fearful. And so they act in a negative way or they withdraw or they take things away. Most of us don't think of fear on the other side as a driver. I feel fear in a situation. So I forge ahead. A lot of people see that as being fearless. That's not being fearless. I'm not fearless. A lot of people say to me, oh, Kim, you're so fearless. I'm not fearless at all, but I've learned to feel the fear and do it anyway. But that's also not always a good thing. Of course, it can be a good thing, just like following the rules out of fear can also be a good thing if it keeps you safe. But you need to look at your decision making. You need to look at your decision making process and your point of deciding. I'm feeling fear. Am I being, am I actually making a conscious choice? when I feel this fear to either continue doing the thing that I'm doing or to stop doing the thing that I'm doing. Okay. Many of us don't do this. We don't slow it down and we don't feel the fear and then decide. We feel the fear and we act on instinct. We act on postulates. We act on beliefs that we built as a child that we have never, ever, ever examined as an adult. So how did, how does this relate to what I'm talking about squatting? Well, what inspired this podcast was I have had a battle with squatting for a long time. I have had this back pain, as you know, as I was saying in the beginning, that was triggered by yoga, which I managed to then completely control. And I believed until recently that the reason why I wasn't feeling back pain anymore wasn't because I wasn't practicing yoga, was because my back was so strong. This was only partially true. Yes, my back had gotten stronger. Yes, my glutes had gotten stronger. But actually, part of the reason and probably 50% of the reason why my back pain has disappeared is because I wasn't practicing back bends. And so I wasn't I wasn't putting stress on my back thinking that if I just kept forging ahead I could change the situation and it would turn out okay. So every time I did back bends or every time I went to yoga, I was slightly fearful of my back being sore, but I was like, no, no, no. If I just keep forging ahead based on the postulate that I had built that I've just told you about, I believed if I just kept forging ahead that I would have success at the end. And I was confused as to why success was not coming. And so then what happened recently, which really triggered me to unpack this and look at it was... I have been squatting in the gym for a long time. And as I get stronger, 
I get, I go heavier and heavier and heavier. So the type of training that I do in the gym is based on high intensity training. High intensity training, not to be confused with high intensity interval training, is where you you add load first and foremost in order to um, build more muscle. So you will add load and then you will work on getting depth with your weight. So load and then you can sacrifice a little bit of form in the final few sets, final few reps of the final set in order just to push past failure and build more muscle. And then you work on getting better form as in like going, you know, deeper on your squats or going deeper in your reps. And then you work on building up your reps. And then once you've got the weight, the the form or the, the depth in your squats and then the reps, then you increase the load again. So over the years, I've been increasing and increasing and increasing and increasing the load. And in the gym with Mark, I do an exercise called a V-squat. Now, a V-squat is where you put your feet on a metal platform and the metal platform is at a slight angle upwards. So your toes are pointing up on the platform. And then there's these two bars that come um, that are in front of you, in front of your face, if you can imagine, and they come back in parallel um back parallel to your shoulders so they sit on top of your shoulders so it's not like it goes across the back of your shoulders like a traditional uh, barbell or you know like you would squat on the smith machine this is almost like two prongs of a fork that come forward and in like a u-shape around the front of your body and these pads sit on your shoulders so we would do this machine as a um, rather than free bar squats because i realized that free bar squats hurt my back right i realized this i was like those bitches hurt my back. Every time I free bar squat, it hurts my back because I dip forward at the bottom when I go really heavy. I can't help but dip forward. It's just the weight of the bar, which then puts strain on my lower back, which then causes me pain. So I realized, okay, avoid free squats and I will have no pain. So I haven't had any back pain for a long time. And so what we would do in the gym is we will do a V squat first and then we will do an incline hack squat. And that's a bitch of a machine, but I don't mind the incline hack squat. Actually, the angle works well for me because my back is pushed flat onto a pad. There's no weight pressing down on top of my shoulders, which is what seems to compress my lower back and hurt my shoulders. And so I've been squatting um, on the V squat. I've been going up and up and up and up in weight. And recently, and so as I go up in weight, then I, I work on, you know, getting the getting used to the weight, then adding more depth, you know, ass to the grass in my squats, then adding more reps. And then as I was getting used to, you know, doing all that, then we added a little bit more load. And we usually go up in kind of 10 kilos at a time, or sorry, uh, yeah, 20 kilos. So we'll go up, you know, add more, add two 10s onto the side of the weight, and then, you know, we'll go up to two 20s. So recently I went up to four plates a side. Now, four plates a side is... 80 kilos per side, which is 60 kilos plus the weight of the machine, which is about 20 kilos. So that's 180 kilos, which I think is about 400 pounds, just over 400 pounds. So I'm squatting 400 pounds now. Now I weigh 143 pounds, which is about 65 kilos, right? 65, 66 kilos. So I am squatting more than double. I'm squatting triple my body weight, triple my body weight, right? So I, yeah, just over nearly tripled my body weight, which is huge. So we went up to four plates a side and I was like, okay, got myself all worked in for it. And Mark, you know, he's at the side. He's always there to spot me if I need it. But let me tell you with, with 180 kilos on it, if I go to the bottom and I can't get back up, there ain't no way Mark's lifting that bar, right? He's just there to keep the rep moving, give me a little bit of an extra push if I need to. 
So I squatted, um, the first week I went in, I put the pads on my shoulders and I went down and I squatted. And as I was pushing up on the third or fourth rep, I was so determined to get this weight up because it was a new weight. I started pushing with my, you know, really pushing with my whole body rather than just keeping the weight on my legs. So I'm pushing up really, really, really hard. And I felt, I felt myself pushing with my shoulders. Like I was consciously pushing with my legs, my glutes, my shoulders, my back, like every single muscle on my body. And so after I stepped off the machine, I was like, I was like, ooh, ooh, and I could feel like this little, you know, I could feel like a twinge in the back of my shoulder blade. And I thought, oh shit, you know, and I said to Mark, oh no, I have this little, this little joint in the back of my, um, at the bottom of my trap, which is kind of just in behind my rhomboid, which gets really aggravated and it has done for years. I don't know why. And so I could feel it there and I was like, oh no, I can feel that rhomboid. I've definitely kind of twinged it because I've injured it over the years. I've had different, you know, I've had physio and stuff on it. And so anyway, I went ahead and I did my second squat and that was fine. And then that night I came to the office and I was like, oh shit, oh shit. I could hardly move my arm because, you know, this this joint seemed to be so aggravated. I was like, oh no. So I was in pain for about four days afterwards. I was like, damn, I've really hurt my shoulders. Stupid bitch. I knew that I'd pushed with my shoulder and I know that with my arms out to the side, you know, almost like they're out like wings with, you know, that weight on my shoulder pushing up. I know that that aggravates that rhomboid. And so I said to Mark, damn. And so the next week we went to squat. I said, I'm not doing the V squat. I'll do the incline hack and the pendulum because I need to give, you know, my shoulder a rest. I don't want to risk injuring it. So anyway, the shoulder was fine. And then two weeks later, we went into the gym and Mark said, are we doing the V squat? And I was like, <sighs> and like this V-squat causes me so much anxiety. It never used to cause me anxiety, but now since we've been going really, really heavy, like 180 kilos, 400 pounds resting on your shoulders is a massive amount of weight. And I can cope with that amount of weight, but now what, was start- now what I was starting to worry about was my shoulder. So I said, okay, okay, let's do it, let's do it. So we did it anyway. We squatted. I got to my, it's like the, the the first three sets are fine. It's just the final squat. It's just the final weight with that huge amount of weight on my back. And so this time I, I pushed really hard and I and I went for six to eight reps or whatever. And I tried to really focus on keeping in the legs, but I did end up pushing a little bit with my shoulders at the end, but it wasn't as sore. But as I came back to the office the next, or, you know, that afternoon, I was like, oh, it's bad, but it's not just quite as bad. And so then I thought, okay, well, maybe it's getting better. Maybe I just need to get stronger. So next week I said, no, we'll give it a miss this week and I'll go again next week. So then two weeks later again, we did, we squatted again. And I get again, but what had started to happen was I'd started to have anxiety. I'd started to like, I, I wasn't sleeping the night before I went to the gym. I started, we'd train legs on a Tuesday. I started dreading it from a Monday. I started getting like, oh my God, you know, getting upset. I would start to feel sick in the morning. I couldn't eat my breakfast properly. I was driving to the gym. I was feeling sick driving to the gym. I was having diarrhea. Like it was awful. I was really beginning to feel, you know, anxious. And I've always felt anxious before leg day anyway, because it's so soul crushingly hard. But now I was beginning to really feel anxious. And anyway, we got to the gym, you know, the next week and Mark was like, are we doing the V squat? Have we made the executive decision that we're not doing it? Or are we doing it? And I was like, no, no, let's just, I said, let's just do it again and we'll see how it goes. So we did it again. And I said, let's just go for six really good reps. Did six really good reps. I, I, I said to him, I'm not going to push at all with my shoulders. I'm going to focus on keeping it in the legs. So I focused on keeping it in the legs. I didn't push it all with the shoulders. I got six really deep reps and no pain whatsoever. So I was like, ah, oh, you see, maybe I just needed to get stronger. So again, same thing again. We, we gave it a miss for a week. We did it two weeks again. I had anxiety. I can't sleep. So now it's getting to the point where I can't sleep from Sunday because I'm dreading legs on a Tuesday. And even at this point, I didn't really think there was a problem, right? This is how crazy I am. So then, um, 
So I, anyway, we got to the gym and I, I squatted again. This time we managed eight reps, 180 kilos, eight reps uh, in my final set. And I didn't push with the shoulders, shoulders, you know, completely fine. So the next week, anyway, we went into the gym and I was like, oh, thank God. So because we started doing the V squats every other week. So we would do V squats and pendulums, sorry, V squats and incline hack squat one week. Then we would do incline hack and pendulum the next week. And my husband, Ryan, trains with me as well. So the next week we went into the gym and I was like, oh, thank God, thank God. It's not V squats. And, um, and so then we did the incline hack and we did the pendulum. And then the next week we went into the gym and Mark said to me, and he goes, well, he goes, are we doing the are we doing the V squat? And I said, you know what? I said, I really, I don't have the emotional capacity for it today. I have my period at the time. I'm, I'm perimenopausal. You know, my, my menstrual cycle has been kind of all over the place. I'm, you know, my emotions are, you know, I'm noticing changes in my body. I said, I don't have the emotional strength to do the V squat. Can we just do the incline hack and the, the pendulum? He was like, sure. Yeah, no problem at all. So we did the incline hack and the pendulum. I was like, oh, thank God, thank God. Like I felt this immense relief, right? So then what happened was we went to the gym the next week and we're of course supposed to now do the V-squat and the incline hack squat. And I said to Mark, and suddenly I had this realization, right? Because I've been working through all of my control issues with my coach. I've been working through all of my control stuff and all of my fear stuff. And and I just, I looked at the, the incline hack or I looked at the pendulums, not the incline, the V-squat. And I said to Mark, Mark, I have a question. I said, and I, it's a genuine question. And I I will, and I, I, I will accept whatever answer you tell me. And he said, okay, fire ahead. Now, understand, I had never thought to ask this question before, but I must have worked through some of my control stuff or some of my fear stuff, which caused me to look at the V-squat and evaluate, evaluate it in a different way. And I said to him, this machine, now that I'm squatting 400 pounds, is causing me a lot of anxiety because I'm afraid I'm going to hurt my shoulder. So I'm not, I'm going into it, I'm feeling anxious. And even though I haven't hurt my shoulder the last two weeks, I said, what would happen if I didn't do it anymore? What would happen if I just did the incline hack squat and the pendulum squat? And he said to me, Kim, my most hated extra or machine in this entire gym is the incline hack squat. He goes, I don't know how you like this machine because it's a fucking bastard of a machine. He said, it is the biggest, is the best machine for building your glutes and your quads. And he said, I detest the pendulum squat as well because it is so fucking difficult. And he said, do you, are you asking me, are you going to make any less progress if you stop doing the V squat, if you only did the, the incline hack squat and the pendulum squat? And I said, yes, that's what I'm asking. And he was like, not a blind bit of difference. He said, you will, you will not lose any muscle and you will not, you know, you will not stop building muscle. And I was like, then what the fuck am I doing the V squat for? And he was like, well, I don't know. You just you just showed up every week and you were like, let's give it another go. I thought you wanted to do it. I was like, you thought I wanted to do it. I was like, Mark, I haven't wanted to do that machine. I haven't wanted to do that squat for, for, for years. I said, but I thought that it was the best possible machine that I could do. And that if I didn't do it, I'd be sacrificing muscle, muscle growth. And he was like, not in a million years. And I was suddenly like, holy crap. And I like jumped onto the, the, the incline hack squat and understand on the incline hack squat, I'm doing 220 kilos for six reps in my final set. I've gone up from 200 kilos now, 220 kilos, which is, I don't even know what that is. Multiply that by 2.2, but it's 440, maybe 480, 460 pounds, 460 pounds in my final set. And Mark's like, you're squatting 460 pounds and you're worried you're going to lose muscle. This is when I realized how the how my fear, how the postulate, how the belief that I had built that has driven my whole life 
was causing me not to evaluate data, was causing me to make decisions that that weren't based on data, that that were just based on fear, except my fear, instead of stopping me from doing something, which is actually what it is for most people, most people feel fear and it stops them from doing things. I built an awful lot of postulates when I was a child through going to boarding school and growing up in the country and putting myself in dangerous situations. I built a lot of postulates that you should, that when you feel fear and you do it anyway, it usually turns out okay. So I have built a lot of belief in my life that when you feel fear and do it anyway, it turns out fine. So I, I was, I was just, mindlessly, blindly V-squatting every week, even though it was causing me anxiety, it was causing me sleepless nights, it was causing me diarrhea, I was feeling sick going to the gym, I was feeling sick after the gym. It was, my central nervous system was taking such a beating, I thought this was necessary. But I hadn't even looked at the fact that it, that it wasn't necessary. And so, it, it, what, what is astounding to me is that not only have I not lost muscle from not doing V-squat, I've continued to build a massive amount of muscle and I have now eliminated all of the exercises that cause me anxiety or cause me pain or make me fearful of hurting myself. I have eliminated T-bar rows on back day. I've eliminated bent over barbell rows. Both of, both of those um, exercises used to cause me anxiety because they used to hurt my back or they used to, they didn't hurt my back, but I was fearful of hurting my back because I have a really strong back. So I can do like 110 kilo T-bar row and there's no point in me doing any less than that because I can do it with really good form. And you know, then I'm, then I don't, I have no interest in doing 15, 16, 20, 25 reps, no interest whatsoever. I want to get in, get it done get out. And so that's how I like to train. I like to do lower reps in the 8 to 12, 6 to 12 rep range. And with a higher weight, I like to get into the gym and get out again in 45 minutes. I have no interest in spending two hours in there doing high volume training, five sets of fucking 100 reps. Absolutely not. That's not how I like to train. If you make me train that way, I'm not going to train. So I have to find a way to train that works with me and my body and how I like to train. And now what I've realized since I've since I've discovered this postulate and unpacked it and realized that it isn't fucking true, I don't let this fear drive my life anymore. I don't let this fear make me carry on regardless thinking that something is going to change or that it's necessary for success. I do not need to feel fear to be successful. Now whenever I feel fear, I actually look at things and go, wow, is this, should this stop me? Should I do this? Should I not? Should I be doing, you know, um, I can do a uh, dumbbell deadlift, okay? A dumbbell deadlift with 60 kilos in each hand. That's 140 pounds. I think maybe more than that. 180 pounds in each hand, right? Each hand. That's what I need to do in order to really feel that exercise working. But whenever I pick up 60 kilos in each hand, it fills me with the fear of God because I have to bend over, keep my back straight. And that is the that is the position that causes me to potentially, if anything went wrong, injure my lower back. So now what I now do I I just don't even do dumbbell deadlifts. I do lying leg curls and seated leg curls and I do um glute, I do standing, uh standing single leg standing single leg curls and I do hip thrusts and glute bridges and all of the heavy shit that still builds me an amazing set of hamstrings and an amazing set of glutes without any risk of injury. And I have an amazingly strong back, a very strong and muscular back. And I don't do one single free bar or dumbbell exercise ever. Every single exercise I do is on a machine. 
I still go heavy. I still go hard. I still train to failure. But now, interestingly, I don't train with fear. I have eliminated all the exercises that cause me pain. And, you know, the fastest way to build muscle, in my opinion, is heavy load. But if you're injuring yourself to move that load or you're impacting your life negatively in any other areas, you really need to find another way to achieve the same result. And there are millions of ways to achieve that result. So the final point that I want to make or the reason why I wanted to record this podcast is because if you are like me and you find yourself pushing through exercises, believing that the squat is the holy grail of leg exercises or that you need to be doing this or you need to be doing that or you should be bench pressing or you should be shoulder pressing or if you're shooting all over yourself in any way in the gym, you need to stop that shit now because there are many, many, many ways to build big shoulders many ways to build big glutes, many ways to build big legs. Even if you can't squat, ask yourself, what can I do? What I always used to teach in yoga was do what you can do, not what you think you can do. That is the key. Do what you can do and not what you think you can do. You know, you and there's many, many, many ways that you can build what you, you know, the body that you want without fear of injuring yourself. So anytime you know, and I guess I want you to take this into, you know, start using maybe your fear in the gym or, you know, start, start examining your life, right? So why I always say like, wherever you go, there you are. And so what I mean by that is however you train in the gym, whatever postulates you have, whatever ways you use to drive yourself or stop yourself or any fears that you have that, you know, of hurting yourself that stop you from, you know, pushing heavier or harder or any of those things, they could be limiting you in other areas of your life. Like I have some friends who are really scared of hurting themselves in the gym and they never ever look at that fear. They just avoid the gym or they avoid an exercise or they avoid whatever. This is not an avoidance technique that I'm teaching you here. I don't avoid the V-squat. What I did was I looked at the fear. I realized that the fear was actually a rational fear. I shouldn't be doing something that's potentially going to, Im- to injure my shoulder, especially when I don't have to. If it was the only way to achieve the result, then I may say, you know what, then I need to kind of push through be very conscious of the shoulder. This is the only way to do something, but it isn't the only way to build big legs. There's many, many, many ways to build big legs. And you don't have to worry about injuring yourself in order to do it. I do have friends, like I said, who stop themselves from lifting heavy in the gym. And then I see where this fear drives the rest of their life. Fear of there being a consequence. Fear. Sometimes they're fearful of their body feeling. They're fearful of the doms afterwards. They're fearful of getting squished like a pancake. They're fearful. So there's so many fears that they have that they never ever examine and they don't even test. Is this fear real? Let me get under a barbell and see. Get, let me get the data. You know, I've, I've always taught you guys that fear is a lack of data. Once you get the data, the fear goes away. You may say, oh my God, I'm so scared of squatting in case I hurt myself. Well, how do you know if you've never squatted? The best way to see if you're going to hurt yourself is to squat. (laughs) You know, like I kept squatting and squatting and squatting and squatting. I was never fearful of hurting myself. But then once it started to hurt, then I realized that the potential of being hurt was there and the fear came up. I was like, is this a real fear or is this not? It's a very real fear. I did hurt my shoulder many, many times. And the fear is real that if I, if I push unnecessarily or I push in a different way or I I don't engage my quads properly and I push on my shoulder, I can hurt my shoulder. That's a real fear. It's not a perceived fear. It's a real fear. I have the data. So what you have to do is, and here's what I want you to do to to, to, to use this in your own life, I guess. I want you to, anytime you feel fear over a situation, I want you to stop 
and I want you to focus on the feeling in your body. I don't want you try to try and avoid the fear. I want you to get really good at recognizing when you're fearful and being like, oh, hang on a wee second. I think I'm fearful. And if you're not good at this, you can, you know, if you're not good at recognizing what fear is, think of a situation when you were terrified when you were younger and then focus on that feeling in your body. That's fear. Okay. So I want you to stop and focus on the feeling in your body when you feel the fear. And then I want you to ask yourself, what memory comes up when you focus on the feeling? The feeling will generally, when you get really good at this, will always bring up a memory and a memory will pop into your mind and you'll go, nah, I don't like that one. Or it'll seem completely unrelated. But if a memory pops into your mind, when you focus on a feeling, it's always related. Okay. It's always related. It's usually what caused the fear that you're now feeling in this situation, even if it doesn't seem related, even if it was my mother yelled at me when I spilt my cereal on the floor and you're standing looking at a squat rack, usually you have made that mean something about yourself. You're not strong, you're not resilient, that you're the kind of person who makes mistakes and you may be then fearful of getting under that bar in case you make a mistake and something bad happens, right? You're fearful of the bad thing happening. You don't know what the bad thing is. The fear in your body is just stopping you from doing it. So when you ask yourself, So I want you to focus on what the memory was, okay? And when the memory comes up, I want you to ask yourself these questions. What did you decide was true in that situation? So thinking about the memory, when the memory comes up, your mother yelled at you when you spilt, you know, cereal on the floor. I want you to ask yourself, what did you decide was true in that situation? What postulate did you build? So for me, it was when you feel fear, you should forge ahead anyway. So with the memory of the horses, it, what I decided was true, what I made true was when you feel fear, you should forge ahead anyway. And then I want you to ask yourself, is what you decided was true actually true? So I want you to look at it now with your adult logic and say, okay, I made it mean that I was bad. I was good. When I feel fear, you should forge ahead anyway. That all people should, you know, wear handkerchiefs on their head. I don't know, whatever it was, right? What did you decide was true? Then ask yourself now, from an adult's perspective, is what you decided was true actually true? Now, for me, for me, it was that fear does not equal danger. That's what I decided was true at the time. Feeling fear does not mean that there's any danger. It means you should forge ahead anyway. The truth is that fear sometimes does equal danger and it's good to know the difference. So in that situation, there was potential danger. I could have fallen, like my, I was, I was seven and my sister was 11. We were alone 30 minutes away from home with no mobile phones, no way to contact phone, no adults around. We were in the middle of a fucking forest, right? There was danger potentially. My mother probably didn't even know that we were there. And so one of us could have fallen off. We could have you know, I could have gotten trampled by a horse. Carol could have gotten stabbed in the eye. There was no way of getting help. The only way to get help would have been if I had have like galloped off down to the main road and tried to stop a car and then they would have had to driven somewhere. You know, there was no mobile phones in those days. So there was danger, but I didn't even perceive the danger. But just because I didn't perceive it didn't mean that it wasn't true. And this is where you have to examine your illogical child-built belief structure with your adult logical one. Just because I could not perceive the danger, did not mean that it did not exist. So you have to look at the situation with adult eyes and say, what did you decide was true and what was actually true? And for me, it was, I decided that fear does not equal danger, but the truth is fear sometimes does equal danger and it is good to know the difference. And then I want you to examine all the areas of your life where you were controlled by fear. What does it stop you from doing? 
You know, when does it stop you from doing something that you want to do? And where does it make you push through the fear? So we will all have areas in our lives where fear stops us and controls us and controls our whole lives. I know many people who are, their whole lives are controlled by fear. They're so fearful of making a mistake, of saying the wrong thing, of doing the wrong thing, of what people think, of you know, of, of disobeying the rules. And so they live their life constantly looking for the fear. Where's the, you know, what's the rule? Where's the rule? How do you, we all know these people, right? Those other people, not you guys, but they're always looking for the rule. What's the rule? What's the rule? What's the rule? What's the rule? Because they all, they want to know the rules. What are the rules? Because they want to follow the rules. Because if you follow the rules, then you, the bad thing won't happen. So their whole life is controlled by fear. And then there's other people who seem like they're fearless, but they're not fearless. They've just learned to push through the fear and do it anyway. So I want you to examine all of the areas of your life where you were controlled by fear. Where does it stop you from doing something you want to do? Where is it limiting you in your life? And then where is fear making you push through something, which actually is potentially helping you in your life, but then what are the limitations of that? Where might you not perceive danger, which actually exists, which causes you, uh, which then limits you in some way. And so, um, and then just know that, and you can even write these down if you want to go to the show notes um, on, on the website, sculptedbeing.com forward slash podcast, write these down and start to think about this in your life because awareness is the first step to change. Becoming aware of your fears, becoming aware of the meaning that you attach to your fear, which may or may not be true in reality. When we're kids, we attach meanings to situations with our immature belief structure which may or may not be true. Sometimes we put the pieces together correctly and sometimes we put them together incorrectly. Being beaten by somebody does not mean they love you. But you may have built that as a child if you were beaten by somebody in your life and it was someone who was supposed to love you, you may have built some kind of belief that love is pain. Love is not supposed to be painful. Love is not supposed to cause pain. Love is not supposed to physically hurt, okay? But we 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 have these beliefs. And I use that as, as one because it's, it's one that I think we can all relate to. But we have these beliefs that literally drive our entire life that we never, ever examine. But when you become aware of your fears, when you become aware of your beliefs, and then you can start to change them. I love the quote. I've said it many times. Freedom lies in the capacity to pause between stimulus and response. So stimulus something happens in the external world. The government tells us that we all have to stay at home and if we don't, we'll get fined and whatever. Response, <gasps> fear, okay? Pause, stimulus. Government says we all should stay at home and be terrified of coronavirus. Response, fear, okay? If you can learn to pause before you act, then you have true freedom. If you feel fear and you act, and you do what you're told, you don't have true freedom. You're actually responding to the fear. You're allowing the fear to drive you. I allowed the fear to drive me in my squats. I allowed it to drive me in the different in the in a different way. I allowed it to drive me forward, which was a good thing, but then at some point that fear or that belief that I had started negatively impacting my life. It started negatively impacting my life. And it was only when I really broke down and examined the fear the why am I doing something that causes me this amount of fear? Why am I continuing to pursue something which is causing me anxiety, sleepless nights, the potential for injury, diarrhea? It's causing me to feel like I'm driving towards my execution when I go to the gym. Why am I continuing to do this thing? Is it logical for me to continue? 
And then I made a decision once I realized it was illogical to continue and I just hadn't examined the data. Are my legs still going to grow if I stop doing V-squats? Yes, Kim, they are. Oh my God, now I have the data and I can stop doing that thing over there. Or if the only way to achieve my goal was to continue to do it, I probably would have continued to do it, but at least I would have evaluated it independent of the fear. That's what I'm asking you to do. Slow down, get to know yourself better, be at cause with your emotions, recognize that you are causing all the fear in your life and being afraid is a choice. Yes, something happens in the external world which triggers our fear. It triggers a fight or flight reaction, but you now have an opportunity to pause and respond. Pause and respond mindfully. Pause and get the data. Wow, I feel fearful. Let me just assess if the fear is real, is based in reality or not. Is there data to support the fear? If there's no data to support the fear or the data seems skewed in some way, ask more questions. But don't act on fear, act on data. If you can change your life to act on data and not act on fear, you will transform your life, I promise. You can choose to allow fear to control you and you can choose not to. But the first step is becoming aware of how fear affects your daily life and taking steps to not allowing it to control you. Take steps towards owning your decisions, owning your life, and owning the consequences of your actions. But the more we allow fear to control us in this world, the more limited we are in our decision-making abilities and the more limited we are in our ability to affect the world and be a causing agent in our own life. And that is what I want for you. That is always what I want for all of you. I want you to be a causing agent in your own life. I want you to have more success and I want you to have ultimately more joy and more happiness because he who has the most joy wins. If you feel joyful in your life every day, then you have won. You've won. That's all. That's what it's all about. But fear is literally the thief of all joy. It is the thief of all joy. It robs the joy from today and it robs the joy from tomorrow. And it, and it causes a very miserable existence. So use the steps that I outlined above. Write them down if you need to. Go back and listen to the pod, that part of the podcast. Figure out where your fears are. What is the associated memory? What is triggering the fear? And, and learn to pause between stimulus response. And I promise you, your life will change as a result. Thank you so much for listening in today. I hope that you enjoyed this podcast. I kind of got really deep into it as I as I like to do, but hopefully you have found it useful. And I just wanted to say thank you so much for continuing to listen to the podcast and enjoy the podcast. I love reading your reviews. So make sure that you continue to leave a review or even if you don't want to win a podcast um, or sorry, win a podcast, even if you don't want to win a, win a Sculpted Vegan program, I still love reading your reviews. So please, please, please do leave me one wherever you listen to this podcast so that I can, you know, connect and and uh, see your name and see what you wrote and see how it affected you because it really does drive me and keep me going every day and it makes me do what I do and do it better. Um, so guys, don't forget if you want to win a Sculpted Vegan program, leave a review of the podcast wherever you listen to it. Send me a screenshot of that review on Instagram. I will announce January's winner at the start of February and all that's left for me to say is have a wonderful rest of your week no matter where you are and love you all so much. Thank you so much for listening. I do truly appreciate you. And I will talk to you next week for another episode of the Kim Constable podcast. Take care and bye for now.